0: Hi, uh, this is Charlie, and this is, uh, another, um, what do you call it? Another, another of the podcasts for, uh, the one, the podcast called To Hell and Back. And thank you for listening. Um, I have with me, and I'm gonna have a conversation very soon. I wanna do a little, make a few comments first, but, um, I wanna introduce Cedar Coons, who's on the phone with me.
1: Hi, uh, you, everybody.
0: Yeah. And then I'm going to tell you more about CEDAR, and I, those of you listening probably know already something because of, you know, you probably responded to an announcement of mine uh, to get on here. Um, I'm very um, grateful and excited about today uh, talking. So I, but as I reflected about it, I thought, I want to say that there's something about the fact that CEDAR's coming on this conversation and something about the nature of what she's going to talk about that kind of goes right to the heart um, of why I started this podcast and what's what's the point and I'm not sure I've ever articulated it quite as clearly as I sort of it happened in my mind today so I just want to say you know when I started the podcast it really uh, and decided to call it to hell and back there's really uh, of course there's two things in that phrase to hell and back and the two hell part is that I've been interested. Oh gosh, probably in a, for about 68 and a half years. In other words, since I was born, about uh, I'm interested in painful experiences and miserable experiences and and life-altering experiences and things that are you know. I'm it's not all I've been interested in. I've had pretty reasonable life in many ways, but I really from early on and some hospitalizations before I was three that I don't remember, but that had a big impact on me. I've just always been interested that and then many, many other things come along as they do in all of your lives where there's one moment after another here and there through your life of events that really, uh, change the course of your own personal history and they can be very traumatic and they can really, uh, and some of them are big losses. Um, and so I won't, uh, bore you with a litany of mind losses um that's not what this is about but um over time i really have always been interested in what people go through why do we go through hell in life in what 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 is that what what is it about our biology what is it about our minds what is it about our social fabric that sends us in and out of hell so many times in a lifetime and for some people terribly um and then um uh And then it it was after that, of course, choosing to work in a field where, you know, so many encounters and so much work is done with people who are uh, in versions of hell and who also uh, want to die or want to or try to die or hurt themselves and in all kinds of ways. And so, you know, it's just been a lifelong reflection on that. And then the other part of it is uh, and back Because I've always been interested in, and as I think probably anyone doing the kind of work that I'm doing, which is probably many of you um, that listen now or will listen to this, and certainly at least Cedar, that um, you know you're interested in why it is that when some people go through a life-altering event that's really painful, that it breaks their back, essentially, and they and they're really slow getting up if they do get up, so to speak. And then there's other people who weather it, somehow get through it, and in some cases just plateau there and in some cases end up deepening who they are and broadening who they are and and shifting who they are in ways that make use of the things that happened and so what is it that distinguishes people and in situations or what situations is it that distinguish i mean is it that if you have a good social support system and you have a terrible thing happen but you have people willing to listen to you connect with you be with you and you can talk about it or be there with it or they do practical support and all of that you know is it that is it that i mean i studied young children in hospitals uh, going in hospitals when they were you know one and two and three years old for years and did some, some research on that and You know, there's a huge, when when children have a separation that's really traumatic in the moment, like a brief separation even, um, a huge difference is made by what the substitute so-called caretaking is when they're separated from the person they're most attached to. It isn't just doomsday when it happens. It depends on a lot of things. So I just think about that. I think we all think about that in our families and in our work. And so it really led me, and then, then to put all of that squarely in relationship to Marshall Linehan, who talked about this from the beginning of when I knew her, and she would talk about what is this about people who have the capacity to bounce back or to survive or to uh, uh, rise up um, as opposed to be broken down, and she was interested in that, articulated it beautifully, and of course, her life story is a story, the one that you know a lot, most people know who know her or know of her. you know it really is to hell and back and um and and recovery and all the all the things she did for herself and then for others so in all of that context of course i wanted to i just wanted to start a podcast because i wanted to have more of an opportunity in another format to think about this and to talk with people about it and to learn things and then to spread the learning in ways that could help people cope with things in their lives um and so uh as as many of you know I started out with uh talking with uh, Domingo Marquez of Puerto Rico about the impact of the hurricane Maria on his life his family's life and his colleagues and his friends and his uh, patients and sort of what that was like and I learned a lot out of out of talking to him a couple of times and those are the first two podcasts the next two are about just going in DBT, but it's also elsewhere in the world in all way, all kinds of ways, go to the process of observing the power of this one so-called skill, uh, way bigger than what most people think of as a skill, but I think of it as the core of the core skills. And so I spent two full sessions on that in the podcast, just talking about that, examples of that, ways of thinking about it, and then the last one was the last one, and it was about all six mindfulness skills in DBT, how they build on observing, and how they help keep people cope with severe emotions and and uh, emptiness. And so now it's Cedar walks into this, and Cedar Coons um, is a person who is a uh, certified DBT therapist. I've, I've known I'm I'm at Cedar a long time ago when she and I taught together. She may have a painful memory from that one. <laughs> She was a great teacher but oh my god she was sort of a beginner teacher while I was already I I don't know I was probably a polywog teacher by then and she was like whatever is before that and um and we were teaching at this gigantic stage in Lancaster Pennsylvania that really the likes of which was made for you know like Neil Diamond and stuff I mean it was amazing place and it was pretty big crowd And in the middle of Cedar's teaching about the bio-social theory, and she was talking about the environment and how it interacts with the the vulnerable biology of people, Um, you know, a woman stood up and it turned out she was a local leader of NAMI, and she was angry, you could tell in her voice, so she was very articulate, and she was challenging Cedar and saying something, I don't know if you remember it, Cedar, what she said, but it it was challenging about, you know, are, are you saying basically that we are all providing invalidating environments for our children? And right. it, he, she said, this sounds a little bit to me like the schizophrenogenic mother. And um, poor Cedar, I just <laughs> thought, what's she going to do? I have more experience than her. And I was looking at you, Cedar, and I kept thinking, should I say something? Should I get up? Should I help out? And then I thought, no, I should just sit there. And uh, I did, and she just totally recovered and um, <laughs> pulled it off. So she she's a person who can think on her feet. She's a person who has a lot of compassion and a lot of uh, courage. And uh, she's a wonderful teacher and a very admired teacher. And she's uh, also developed uh, as a mindfulness practitioner and teacher instructor, as well as running retreats. And including for DBT therapist types, but other people too. And and she moved out to Santa Fe from North Carolina after having been involved in very important research. She published one of the important early research papers on DBT about uh, the out an outcome paper, a, a randomized controlled trial. So she's been all over this for years. And she and I talked not long ago on a little webinar kind of thing with Kelly Kerner and Practice Ground about wasn't it about new year's resolutions? is that right <laughs> it, it
1: was in general about mindfulness
0: I, um... oh, we talked about mindfulness I was thinking I was <laughs> thinking the prompt was but no i I think I'm wrong. I think that was a different one I did with Kelly, yeah, we talked about mindfulness and about and because Cedar also um, has written a brilliant book. I mean, I say that, of course, that you say that when you invite a guest on, but let me tell you, it's really true. I mean, I have this book next to my chair in my office where I see patients and where I do groups, and I teach, and I teach from it. I use it for ideas about how to teach the different things. It's called The Mindfulness Solution to Intense Emotions, just what I've been talking about in this podcast. Um and uh, so it's all about that and breaking it down in great detail and giving a ton of examples. So I highly recommend her book, which just came out in like a year ago or something. Um, it's both very smart and very um, accessible. Um, so anyway, why am I talking to her now? Why did I invite her on? You know, on the Internet, I came across her blog. And her blog, which she started recently writing a blog about her sister who died, uh, of suicide, uh, two years ago or so. And, uh, if I remember right, the first writing of the blog, you know, it took her quite a while to get to where she could start to speak and articulate and, and put this out there. And I just thought, I just so admired it. And she's a good writer. If you want to go to her blog and her website, by the way, it's cedarcoons.com. And she has this blog as well as uh, you find out what she's up to, what she's doing, and more about her. So I highly recommend that. And uh, the blog was sort of like a step-by-step story of what happened with her sister uh, killing herself and then how that impacted Cedar and the family and everything um, and how Cedar has come to grips with it. So I thought, oh, my God. I want to know how she came to grips with it, and I'd love to talk with her in this forum, if not just privately. And we have talked some, and um, she agreed to come on. Uh, so that's what this is about. I wanted to give a little background, so you see, is um, that's why. And I'm, I'm what I, Cedar. What I'm really hoping to find out with you is just an ongoing journey of coming up with how do you how do you have such a huge uh, tragic life threat, life altering event like this with your own sister happen that you're connected to and go through and then here you, here it is two years later and just how do you go through it and, 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 how did it knock you down and what knocked you down and, and what's the difference between losing a, a family member to suicide, um, the specific ways that that's different than if you, than if she had had a heart attack, let's say. Like, what do you have to come to grips with, or how would you put it? Because so many people who might listen to this uh, have had things like this happen, um, and then others just have had other tragedies happen, so it could be useful for anybody. But, you know, that's that's the whole and probably long-winded background. I'm sorry if it seemed like too much, because I want to get right to hearing from Cedar. Um, and here's, so here's what I want to do, Cedar. I, I want to ask you just some questions to get started. About yourself, okay. um, and I thought um, first. Let me say this, Cedar. Would, would do you want to do you want to say something about anything I've said up to now, and um, including you know making the decision about doing this, being on this podcast, which is then a kind of a public event where you're talking about such a personal matter.
1: Well, thank you Charlie. You know, the one thing I want to say is how much I appreciate you and what you're doing and making this podcast available to people who str- who are struggling with something big. Uh and and for inviting me on, for taking the time to read my blog and for then inviting me on. And you know, I I very part of the decision for me is that I very much trust you. Uh, that you are someone who deeply understands what goes on in a human being when something like this, a cataclysm like this, occurs in their life. And the reason I want to, to go public is because there is still so much shroudedness and secrecy and, and stigma really associated with, with suicide. And so family members are left feeling like it's kind of almost unmentionable to talk about it mm-hmm. and you need to talk about it you have to be able to talk about it mm-hmm. and you have to come to terms with it and it's not just the loss of this person you loved but it's it's the whole question of what could I have done differently is there any way I could have stopped this uh, you know how do I feel about the way other people uh, were, in, were involved in this whole event and then the impact that it has on the family, I just feel that it's something that must be discussed, must be something that people are able to really uh, have a dialogue about. And so that's why I was willing to do this. And it's been amazing the um, support and really the outpouring of of love that I've received and also of people saying yes my father my brother my mother my husband my wife uh, my child uh, committed suicide and so much of what you're saying resonates with me and so to be able to in some way assist people with getting in touch with their with a uh, feeling with healing around Mm. this terrible loss, and it takes a lot of time, and Mm. so that's why I've been willing to do it.
0: Mm. And it took a lot of time, meaning, like, I have this impression that if I had spoken to you a year ago, it's not something you would have been ready to do.
1: Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, No, I I hadn't reached... I was still, if you will, sort of trudging uphill with this, and Mm. kind of out of breath, and not really knowing where i was going with it um although i have to say that you know i my mindfulness practice really helped me to stay in the present moment but that present moment wasn't a place from which i could really talk to anyone other than intimate people Mm -hmm. and yeah you know i'm I'm very grateful that excuse me i had a lot of support from Mm. my husband my daughter, who was very close to her, to her aunt, uh, and, you know, some very close friends who were right by my side throughout. But mm-hmm. yeah, a year ago I would have not been able to do this.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Hey, I wanna, I wanna make a comment. I wanna be delicate about this because what you, you used a phrase, that I used on this podcast a a week or two ago, whenever I was last on it, when I was talking about the fact that you were going to come on and what had happened with your sister. And, uh, then somebody wrote to me and, and, um, alerted me to something that I had never thought about, um, I'm pretty sensitive to language myself because I, um, you know, I adopted two boys and there's ways that people talk about adoption in society and in movies, uh-huh. TV, it's just normal conversation that they don't realize uh, how you would feel if you were an adoptive parent when people say certain things that are to- totally benign. So anyway, when I used the phrase committed suicide... Um, there, somebody who has been through this themselves and their family, alerted me that that phrase can be really um, challenging because uh, the way that. And I thought I didn't get all the details about what about why I just was alerted to. Oh, you know, there's other ways to talk about this, like people die by suicide and people, uh, you know, kill themselves, but committed suicide already i was realizing part of the stigma is buried in the language even because i started thinking when i was driving somewhere today where how do i use that word committed when there's a direct object you know not committed to treatment or committed to my goals but what do we commit we commit sins we commit we uh, commit people uh to hospitals we commit crimes And I realized, you know, the word commitment has buried in it, even though you yourself have like been through all of this. But I was just noticing that and not wanting to feel like I'm criticizing you, but bringing this up because I think it's a useful thing that we all realize that we're, there's just got to be just, this is probably pervasive, the way we think about suicide and the way our, in our history, it's encoded in language. And I, yeah, so I just absolutely. wondered if you could say something I mean, about that because, I, again, I don't—I hesitated to say it because it puts you on the spot. But I was in the same position last week or two weeks ago.
1: You know, I think, I sort of feel like there's no way to talk about suicide that's not going to be hurtful. Yeah, uh, right. You know, so i i am not particularly as a family member of someone. Who died as a result of suicide? I'm not offended by committed suicide, but I but I understand that some some people might feel that way. Sure. Uh, I've noticed for myself the um, the tendency to to say when I don't want to get into the discussion, my sister died two years ago,
2: yeah. and
1: people will say, "Oh, I'm sorry," you know. And right. if I say my sister died by suicide or my sister killed herself or my sister committed suicide, I get a very different uh, reaction from people. And so, you know, as a family member and a survivor, I feel like it's kind of my decision how I bring it up and how I talk about it.
2: Right, right. Um,
1: but, you know, I can understand. I mean, people are always trying to make language be more uh uh, effective and less off-putting and stigmatizing and, and, and yes. judging and all of that. So I'm I'm no. all for that.
0: No, it's all you know, in every area where there's stigma. These things are attended to, and they, you know, and some people have different reactions. But anyway, let me ask yeah. you if you'd be willing to do this because we have we have the rest of to this hour and then an hour next. Uh, two weeks from now just to actually let people know who are on the podcast those who want to listen live to it uh, mm-hmm. it'll be it'll be two weeks from now uh, at the same time on the 31st of January um, Cedar and I are actually going to talk earlier in the day because of our schedules but it's going to be put on put out there at uh, the same time that this was um, so we have more time so I just wanted to see if so that we could all kind of uh understand more about this and how it how you went through it and where you were coming from um, whether uh you could say something about just who you are what your life has been where you were where you grew up who your siblings your parents I mean just kind of like so we know leading into what happened with your sister like Who have you been, (laughs) and who has she been, and (laughs) stuff like that? Could you just sort of start by telling us a bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. Okay, so um, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was the third of three girls, Mm. and my sister, I had two older sisters, Carlton, who is the sister who is deceased, and she uh, was... Four years older than I am and not quite just short of four years older mm-hmm. my sister Raleigh of seven years older so there was a lot of space between each one of us uh, we grew up in a Catholic family mm-hmm. not devout but I did go to 12 years of Catholic school mm-hmm. my mother was a Latin teacher uh, she was mm-hmm. a very learned woman and my father worked for the federal government in the uh, federal housing administration and after he left the federal housing administration he was instrumental in bringing uh, low-income housing and non-discriminatory housing to louisville well wow. my parents were politically liberal uh, my home was a was a, a good safe home in most respects mm-hmm. my relationship with my sister, Carlton, who's the one we'll be talking about, mm-hmm. uh, I always admired her. Carlton was um, an extraordinary person. She, she was uh, light and ebullient and funny and very, very pretty. She was a redhead. Uh, mm-hmm. She was artistic. She had a very unusual grasp of aesthetics that showed up in the way she dressed the way she decorated her room mm. how she felt about herself i always she was she always to me was the avant-garde you know she was always ahead of everything
2: mm.
1: we went to the same schools. i loved those schools she hated them <laughs> she, she was uh, not academically oriented she was very very creative and from the time she Graduated from college, she was about the business of becoming a an artist, and she uh, she became extremely successful as a jewelry designer and then as an interior designer.
2: Mm.
1: And she was nationally known, but she was a celebrity in the town I grew up in.
2: Mm. I,
1: on the other hand, left home to go to Duke University and really pretty much never looked back. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of, uh, my values were different to some extent in the sense that my parents, even though they were politically liberal, what they really wanted was for us to go to college and get our MRS degree <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and then, you know, kind of settle down and be good little girls. and. I, that wasn't what I was interested in doing, and I never went back to Louisville, which, mm-hmm. you know, affected my relationships. However, you know, my relationships with, uh, with my si- siblings. However, my relationship with Carlton began to be really close when we were in our late tw- teens, early twenties. She had moved away more from my older sister, who was, uh, you know, older, more conservative, uh, more, um, interpersonally difficult. And she and I, we traveled together some. We, we used to, our, 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 one of our favorite things to do was to go horseback riding together. Oh. Uh, she was a really accomplished horsewoman. You know, this is Kentucky. She had great horses. I, I also ride and we had a lot of fun riding. She married, uh, a psychiatrist actually. Uh, and uh, they had a big, beautiful home in the country where they had horses, and she had two boys, and both of her boys had developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, one son, the older son, whose name is Alex, is um, does not live independently, uh, and the other son, Peter, does live independently, but he has, you know, a lot of wraparound services. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you. I me...
1: had two children who did not have, um, mm-hmm. these kinds of, um, problems. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet my sister Carlton was never envious. She just loved my children, and they mm-hmm. loved her. Uh, however, her marriage was very unhappy, and uh, she got divorced, uh, it's been now about, it was about 16 years ago.
0: Mm. Mm. So, so did, you, did you say she finished college?
1: Yes, she did. She, she did. had a degree okay. in art history.
0: I mean, from here's somebody who hated school. And, um... She hated
1: school. Yes, yeah, she did. You know, she, uh, she marched to her own drummer. I mean, she wasn't a rebel in the sense... I mean I was involved in the countercultural movement and I was political and a feminist and so mm-hmm. forth she wasn't interested in any of those she was interested in art and design mm-hmm. and uh, and she was very very ta- very talented and very successful businesswoman mm-hmm.
0: did she and, have, like at that stage had she had um, you know any anything that you look back on and she had was having some kind of symptoms of mood problems or anything
1: um, Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, my other sister, uh, who is also a mental health professional, believed for years that she had bipolar disorder, and I had never seen the depression. I had only mm. seen—I didn't even—you know, she didn't. She—I wouldn't have even described it as hypomania, but she definitely had highs.
2: Mm. She
1: would, you know, she would get excited and do a whole lot of work all at once. But I never saw the depression. Mm. Uh, until uh, the last five years five to seven years of her life Mm -hmm. and then um, I would have to say yes that she she was she would get fiercely depressed
0: Mm. Um, fiercely depressed like not be able to function
1: no she functioned Um, I mean you know this is someone who functioned extraordinarily well in terms of like you know she was able to for example present herself beautifully at a, um, a party or, um, you know, when she was selling her jewelry or whatever. Uh, but she was never very good at the sort of, you know, remember the wants to shoulds. she was never very good at the shoulds. So she would often leave her, her calendar, uh, incomplete, (laughs) you know, her bank account, excuse me, not, uh, balanced, um, she would show up very late for family get-togethers. She was very much absorbed in
0: her own. Um Cedar? Cedar? Yes. Just one second. I'm I'm here. I'm getting a ton of static,
2: and I yes. don't know
0: if everybody is or if that's just my connection. I just wrote I wrote Perry about it to see if there's anything to be done, but uh, I'm just barely hearing you over the static.
1: Oh, I'm you, sorry. Yeah, I I am uh, trying to hear
0: it, too, now. Hello? Hello? You can hear me?
1: Yeah,
0: I can hear you. Okay. I just, uh, it's a little, yeah, I just don't know if it's staticky for anyone else. Now it's gotten somewhat better. Okay. So I would say, um, I would say <clears throat> to go ahead. Uh, at this point, because I can hear there's still some static. We'll see if it goes down. Okay. I, I apologize. So we were
1: talking about uh, Carlson's mental health, which yeah. uh, she had been in therapy for a number of years, um, but as a uh, as a therapist in my own professional life, I have to say that I often felt like she wasn't getting the help that she needed. Uh, she She tended to be attracted to modalities that involve things like hypnosis, past life regression, and so forth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and she did take um, an SSRI for many years, which I don't know if that made her worse. I don't know. Oh. Mm-hmm. At the end of her life, uh, she, we're pretty sure she was um, addicted to Xanax.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: So I don't think, unfortunately, that mental health care was really very helpful to her. Mm -hmm. Um, She was very headstrong, and she had her ideas about what she wanted and and what she believed, and that tended to be, uh, you know, so I think that at times she might have been kind of difficult to work with. Uh, Probably when she felt well, she didn't come, (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um so but at any rate I did start to see you know she suffered from she had two difficult marriages her first marriage was really really difficult and after her divorce her uh first husband who's the father of her two sons sued her repeatedly and and it was a really she couldn't get away from the constant lawsuits and and you know the effect that that had on her. Her second husband, unfortunately, um, had a drinking problem. So, sh- mm-hmm. I can hear the static. Is it?
0: Hey, Cedar.
1: Yeah. Yes. I'm I sorry can to do it. this,
0: but I I'm having this again. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call back in. Uh, with the thought that my line, there's something wrong with my line. Okay. So I would say you could go ahead, but I'll be back on in about one minute. Okay. Okay.
1: All right. Oh, Peter, that might have been him. You it know, might have not. been him, yeah. Yeah, good. Great. So do you but, want to continue? Okay, so, so I will continue. Yeah. So she was, un- her marriage was unhappy. She really loved her sons, but as they aged, there, you know, the, a lot of the things that um, I was experiencing, like enjoying my children's. Time in college, their, their successes after college, their, their weddings, their, the births of their, you know, my grandchildren, those things were not in her life because of her children's disabilities. And, um, she also began to be very worried about money. She lived a very, um, her lifestyle was extremely expensive. And she started to be worried that she would have to give up her farm and her horses and her big, beautiful house. And and, and those things meant a great deal to her. And traveling and, and so forth. She did a lot of... She traveled all over the world. She had... Her friends were all um, extremely wealthy people. She was the only... You know, they were all very conservative, and she would get into political arguments with them. But they were all very, very wealthy, and she was afraid of falling from that circle. So oh. she had, I mean, and and then she just truly was felt that she had not found, this is really, really important, that she oh. had not found peace in herself with acceptance, and peace with her difficult situation and granted her situation was very difficult but she would ask me about mindfulness practice regularly huh. and I would try I would try to do everything I try to get her to come to to, to listen to a, a tape of a teacher speaking to try a three-minute practice on a daily basis to you know, for she and I to talk about it, you know, for anything, for her to go back to the Catholic Church, whatever it was going to take, she needed to feel a connection to something larger than herself or something truer than what she thought of as herself.
2: So long, and that you know, she, was
1: very, very hard. And she never, I have to say that, uh, she never found that. And that but, was. But, Cedar, would you, were you
0: troubled by that at the time? Oh.
1: I was troubled by that for 25 years.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Because, honestly, she would ask me about it every time we were together. She would say, are you still, you know, meditating? And I would say, oh, yes. And she'd say, well, what does it do for you? And I'd tell her, and she'd say, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. I said, you can't mm-hmm. do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I felt in her that there was this depth of longing to be connected to, to herself. Mm-hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. not really something larger than herself, but it's her larger self, let's say. Something beyond the fact that she was starting to age, even though she, I mean, she looked terrific. Mm -hmm. Uh, she was very slender, you know, she had, she had a lot of work done, as people in those circles do. She looked great. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. and yet she couldn't, she couldn't really connect. She, you know, honestly, I, you know, of course, when I went through her all of her things as the executor of her estate, I found I found a number of journals, and one of the things that I realized is that she didn't feel worthy. Oh. And that broke my heart.
0: Oh. You know, and it's and here's somebody who. I mean, you think what what was the source of that? I mean, here's somebody with a, a very impressive level of intelligence and a lot of good graces in her life Um, and lots of reason to I mean so getting lots of external reinforcement for being a talented and beautiful person yeah so as we know that doesn't exactly do it necessarily but I mean wow so she felt very unworthy and you wouldn't have necessarily guessed that that wasn't her presentation.
1: no I, I would not have guessed that at all as a matter of fact um, you know, Carlton could be pretty self-absorbed and at times, and not very tuned in to other people. And mm-hmm. so when she was the center of attention, you know, she just radiated this glow. But when you, when she wasn't in the center of things, you mm-hmm. could see that she was very lost. Mm-hmm. And as someone who was sort of on the receiving end at times of some of her insensitivities, mm-hmm. I really didn't see that, you know, it's one of those things that I don't know what to say other than I I feel like I'm more able to love her now than, Mm. it was harder, it's easier to love her now and to forgive her and to, you know, cherish her really than it was then. In those days I loved her and I and I loved her but it was in spite of a lot of other stuff like the fact that she wouldn't you know when my father died which he died 18 months before she did and he was 100 years old and he was very much the patriarch wow. and we were all the ex- the co-executors of his estate but I ran uh-huh. every I did it, I I my job was the sort of executive of it and I couldn't get her to return things and it used to make me so Angry, Like, how could she be so, you know, careless? Uh But I think it came from this, she was losing grip even then.
0: Yeah, yeah. And her core
1: was just not strong.
0: Yeah. But also, she was somebody who hated school, and you have to think, you just wonder, was there a trend for a long time of her being really good at what she did, but that there were ways of managing life. I mean, yeah. mindfulness is, you know, my my mother never practiced mindfulness, but I think she was very mindful. And I think you wouldn't see it in practicing mindfulness, but you'd see it in that she really knew what was going on. I mean, she was there, you know, I, I had a father yeah. that kind of came and went. I mean, he was present, but he mentally came away in some ways but my mother was like oh yeah she knows this and she knows that and she knows that i don't mean anything incredibly intelligent just kind of she was situated she was present and she was there and you know but i don't know if she ever even heard the idea of mindfulness or meditation um she was religious though and um yeah i just wonder it's like it sounds like she was plagued um you know, by what she didn't have, or just maybe by her choppy experience inside, that she just wasn't settled in. Um, Yes,
1: I mean, I think she got, she was, she was extremely mindful when she made art, and toward the Mm. end of her life, she painted quite a lot, and her paintings are are beautiful, they're just beautiful, Mm. and she sold a, a lot of them, and she was mindful when she was on horseback. Mm. And she lived in a gorgeous place where she could ride, you know, these fields mm. along the river and so forth. And she was a great lover of nature. Mm. But when she was with people, she was distracted. And she was often not... Uh, she And she also was very avoidant. She wouldn't go right at something that was bothering her.
0: I see. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So,
0: like you know, when w- it
1: started started to go down around the time of my father's, uh, death. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, my father was just this, this, he was an amazing man. He was an incredibly loving father and he was such a provider for us in terms of, he was just Mm -hmm. there. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, he was well until a week before he died and then he died. And, uh, that was sort of, I think without my father, I don't think my sister would have killed herself, you know, with my father living Mm. and then she decided within six weeks of his death, she decided to divorce her husband without Mm. thinking at all of how much money that was going to take out of her, you know, day to day life.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and at that point, I believe she started into a uh, decline that were, were, that was, characterized by, um, you know, more uh, depression, but also some hypomania, and even possibly mania, because Mm. she got to where she was really not thinking straight. Mm. And Mm. I was, you know, and during this time, she wouldn't return my calls. A lot of times Mm. she was when I would ask her how she was doing, she would give me a kind of a, 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 a cock and bull story. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew things were wrong. Uh, and yet, um, it's, you know, it's one of those things. I am a mental health professional. And in mm-hmm. my, and I've worked with suicidal people throughout my career. Mm-hmm. And it's just different with a family member. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can't, directive with a family member in the
0: same yeah way. yeah I know this is true hey let me what was I was gonna ask oh it was so interesting you said that you didn't you think if your father hadn't died it she you she wouldn't have done this but why is that what how do you understand that I mean is that because he was always present with her he was a cheerleader for her he was uh, somebody she always was uh, attached to and in uh, what do you why why would that have made the difference
1: Well, you know, again, to take take us back to the sort of the, you know, we grew up in the 50s, and, you know, Mm -hmm. Daddy's word was Daddy's, you know, word. I left home, so I kind of made my own way. My Mm -hmm. other sister, both of my other sisters, spent every Sunday with my father and mother until my Mm -hmm. mother died in 2000. And he was a very benevolent force, but he was also, he was like, well, we just don't do these kinds of things.
2: You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, we don't live outside of our means. We don't have extramarital affairs. We don't, you know, we mm-hmm. don't, we don't kill ourselves.
0: Mm. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it would have been a, a she, it would have been a bar that she would have been more aware of his, I, how I he believe, would have regarded I mean, of course, it. I yeah.
1: I'll never know, but.
0: I know. It's all retrospective, but. Um, yeah. Just trying, you know, I do think that this is something that when I've worked with people who've. Lost a family member to suicide. There is just, you know, it is a it's a long, long process of reviewing things and then thinking. Um, and you don't know. You you can you can't replay it. Um, but you, you, it's hard to stop coming up with hypotheses. Um, yes,
1: absolutely. And mine really, I started to generate. Uh, I mean, my hypotheses really started around the time of her her hospitalization. She had never been psychiatrically hospitalized before, mm. um, but in September of 2015, and she killed herself uh, on October 6, 2015, and in September, she had, uh, I had been very, very, very concerned, and my other sister had been, and I had been talking, which was not, uh, which was not common for us, because we've, we have not really ever been close and it's been always a little challenging between us, which mm. is another one of those things that's kind of hard to admit, kind of un- unfathomable, you know, how is it? We're, we're, we're very much alike. We, we have very similar kinds of, of uh, values, but mm-hmm. I think it goes back to, uh, you know, early childhood stuff that I came along and, and, you know, she was never really very happy the fact that I came along. She mm-hmm. wasn't very happy. She didn't like Carlton either. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of Raleigh, my older sister, I felt that she did have some envy um, of the fact that I was able to leave home, that I was able mm-hmm. to go to a good university, that I,
2: mm-hmm. you know, that
1: my family and so forth. But mm-hmm. the point being that she started calling me very concerned, and at this particular time, uh, Carlton had gotten a live-in boyfriend um, mm-hmm. who she wasn't really that interested in, but she, it, it kept her from having to be alone. She was very mm-hmm. afraid of being alone,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: which was something mm-hmm. I never experienced. I, did, I was never afraid of being alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But she really, really was, and I That's you know again, is. I tried to talk to her about how a mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Would help with that. Well, let me uh, ask she you, really, Cedar. I don't think just... she really wanted to get in touch with her inner world.
0: Oh, which she is what? Well, yeah, which would happen with the mindfulness practice more. Figure exactly. She would have to sit, settle down, and and pay attention.
1: That's yeah. right.
0: You know, I wonder with, since you're also a mindfulness instructor and you've given so much thought to, to mindfulness and how you get people to learn this. I mean, if you look at yourself as having been a mindfulness instructor and you must have come across people, I, I have sometimes where it seems like mindfulness would be really helpful to somebody and they just either can't or won't do it. Yes. I mean, if you thought of her not as your sister, you know, that you, that would, be curious about mindfulness and stuff but you were an instructor and she came how do you get people to practice mindfulness for whom it would look like it's going to be beneficial but uh, they just can't get themselves to I don't know sit down and do it or sit still or do whatever you, they need to do I mean what do you do
1: well you know I believe that there and I've, I've, for many years I've felt that this is true and it's actually something that my teacher talks about a great deal and that is that an individual has to have a thirst. Um, mm-hmm. Now, my sister had a longing, but it it was not, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, oh, I'm longing for, you know, a nice drink of water. And it's another to say, I'm dying of thirst. I'm really thirsty. I have yeah. to have water.
2: Yes, yeah, right.
1: I think, you know, that part of the reason why I never could get Carlton to, you know, take this and make a practice out of it is because, and I mean, I gave her written instructions. I did, you know,
2: mm.
1: uh, you know, I did so many, um, made a lot of different efforts. Is because on some level, I don't think she was thirsty to know herself. Mm-hmm. I think she was thirsty to feel, to feel safe, secure, content. But she really was completely convinced that, and, and I don't know. I mean, this is speculation, but I think she was convinced that if she got things right on the outside, which she'd always mm-hmm. been able to do, you know, she. This is a woman yeah. who bought houses that were. She bought two. She rehabbed two. Very derelict, but very beautiful old houses. And mm-hmm. turned them into, I mean, one of them, uh, she, uh, she sold to a very well known person, which I'm not, you know, she sold the first one to a very well known celebrity. And the second one, uh, you know, it, they, they were show places, but it yeah. this beauty didn't, this external beauty that she was so.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, 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 it didn't fulfill her, or yeah. deal with internal world that has to do with acceptance and observing and and yeah. being at peace with and content with.
0: You know, when I was in uh, when I was in my very first psychotherapy ever, and I was it was in was I, I was still in co- it was my last year of college. And I went and saw this guy who was a very good psychotherapist, psychoanalyst type. And, uh, when I saw him, and there was a certain point I was deciding I wanted to go to medical school. And he, and, and I, and I said to him, and this was totally what you would call transference, um, that, uh, that I was convinced that he would think that if I went to medical school, I should become a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, mm-hmm. which is not what I was thinking. And, and I got convinced. I said, you know, you want that? And he finally he said, look, let me just be, tell you actually what I think about that. He said, you know, when you're a psychoanalyst, you have to sit still. You have to be very objective and just be there. And he said, you know, and you don't strike me as necessarily wanting to do that. You're kind of restless and you're a very kind and hands-on kind of person. I could more picture you. As a family doctor, a pediatrician, or an internist, or something where, where you're not restrained by having to sit in a chair. And right. it, this is only tangentially related to this, but I do think that there are people for whom trying to get them to do mindfulness is like trying to get them to change their biology. You know, yeah,
1: like, I, I, I do. I mean, I do think that there are some people who are very. I mean, I, I think what Carlton would say, were well, she here now, that she was very mindful when she rode her horse.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Right, right.
1: And I know myself from many hours, I mean, she was not one to ride alone. I have done a lot of riding alone. Uh, And it really is quite mindful. But even if you're riding with other people, there are long periods of time where it's you, your body, the horse, your breath, you know, the sky, the earth, It's very, it requires a lot of presence. And I don't, you know, I don't know if, I mean, the thing is, is that I do think there is innate in a human being the desire to be content and the desire to feel peace. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's
1: not like you can just wave any kind of wand and that you have to really, you have to prioritize that. That has to be something that you make a daily activity,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then, mm-hmm. and I think only then do you start to get reinforced by it. It's it's not mm-hmm. immediately
0: reinforcing. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, what we're doing is we're we're kind of getting up to the point where then things went downhill, and then she yeah um, killed herself, and that's so we're gonna mostly that's what we're gonna get to next time at the beginning. Um, And so I really feel like I have some sense of the scene by now. And um, it's very, um, I don't know, I'm as as, you know, you're a psychotherapist, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm just sort of imagining as if I'm as if I know Carlton. You know, as if you've been telling me about this person, I can imagine her because I've had people like her, um, both in my personal as well as professional life and think, yeah, she's really got this and this and this, but she's very unsettled. She's like fluttering around and she's really doing well in the circles of fluttering around. But but there's something there that you're saying, and obviously you, you knew it in your bones about her and that yeah. she just couldn't, and you went to such effort. And not necessarily that mindfulness practice would have been the answer, but there was something missing where she just felt, you know, we're, there's something missing in all of us. But there was a, it sounds like a yearning for, gee, I mean, I just think it's so amazing that she kept coming back to you and asking about mindfulness when, I, can, I don't know, I can almost imagine her saying, well, I don't want to do that, you know. I sent somebody to a mindfulness thing with John Kabat-Zinn, and it started out... The first day it was going to be a several day thing retreat with him and some other people, and and yeah. everybody sat down and the first thing first exercise they were doing was everybody took off their shoes and they were tossing a shoe back and forth in a group, and this person was like, "Oh my God, is that what we're doing here? I'm not going to stay here," and she left. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you know, it's sort of like there, it just didn't fit that person's temperament, that biology, and I'm I'm not sure you can get someone like that to do that. But that same person, who I still know, is actually fully capable of sitting, uh, looking at nature out on a patio and sitting looking in the woods and do that for an hour or two, just having a cup of tea. And okay. and it's really mindfulness. So it's really like how to how to get her but to do that. But there does feel like there was a kind of a, a flutteriness in her that got more desperate. Over t- at the, toward the end, when things were coming down, and, and your father, your father had died. Um,
1: yes, just, I think yeah. she. You know, the the thing is, is that, and I don't want to be too um, narrow about this, but you know, my sister had the capacity to sit on her beautiful side deck, looking out over elms and ash trees and big right. oak trees and the pasture, right. and so, with a cup of coffee and just talk about how beautiful it was but the reality is that a lot of the world is not that beautiful
0: and when that's you're right. sitting
1: there looking out at beauty you know you could have something you know very ugly come into your mind you know that's right the, the 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 thing about about whether it's walking mindfulness or seated mindfulness or whatever it is is that it really is an attempt to Experience reality as it is, non-judgmentally and very intentionally. Right, right. right. Yeah, and one senses,
0: from what you're saying, that that was not easy for her. She's not sitting there with her cup of coffee looking out necessarily and letting her mind uh, wander uh, among everything in her mind. You know, things that, like I was thinking, what, for if it were me imagining her being her or in her life, Like, even if I came to love these two boys that she had, that given the nature of her life and her style and her social life and her expectations, um, she somehow had a capacity to move forward anyway. But it, it would have been a source of having to come to terms with the loss of what she thought she would have as kids. Um, and Absolutely. I've seen pictures of these two kids with you, and, and I loved it. But but it's yeah. very different than someone in her in her circle of life. Right. To be raising a couple of kids with developmental disabilities that are not going to do anything like what she did or her family right. does. And I would think that, for instance, if you were being mindful and having your cup of coffee, you'd be looking out and you'd be, those thoughts would be coming across your mind. And you would have to say, yeah, I'm, I mean, and you'd have to come to terms with that. Say, you know, I love these kids, but I'm also disappointed. I'm also realizing what I'm missing. And I just wonder if she had that kind of settled capacity to take in and sift through the negative side of things.
1: You know, I think she did at times until toward the end, and then that went completely away
0: well look maybe that's the perfect place to to stop and then uh, I I hadn't thought of it this way that we would get to know her and your situation up until that moment but that's the way it's come about so um, it means that when we start talking next time Cedar you know I'm just going to probably quickly bring us to something like this point but I think it's also a chance for both of us to reflect on things that came up in um, this conversation or you know, or that didn't quite come up, but that you were thinking of, and then yeah. just jump in, yeah, it's a chance to reflect as well as to continue the story, and um, yeah. really invite you to do that, and I'll do that, and also now and then I get emails from people who've been listening, and I, I and if and if they don't get to you because they aren't they don't either don't know your email i'll anything I get, I'll send on to you um, okay
2: that,
1: that sounds great
0: and also, I assume your email. Is probably also on your website is that right or not
1: uh, yes it's yeah anybody can re- reach me at cedar cedar at cedarcoons.com com.
0: cedar at Cedarcoons.com. okay yeah or just Cedarcoons.com and go to the website and then you can find how to right. reach you all right thank you cedar and look oh. you really you deserve a full going to bed have something <laughs> comforting and 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 rest Thank
1: you. Thank you. Um, Thank
0: you. It's great to talk to you.
1: Great to talk with you, Charlie.
0: Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye, everybody, and uh, and Perry as well. Thank you to both of you. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye.